0: That's the passage we're going to look at this morning. It's 12 through 26. So just to kind of give you some context, last week we saw the Son of Man, we saw the Son of God departing in the ascension, and then next week we're going to see the Spirit of God arriving at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So this week, we're in an in-between week, so this week is the 10-day period from the ascension of Jesus to the coming of the Holy Spirit as the disciples are waiting They're waiting. Jesus has gone up to heaven to present his sacrifice on our behalf to God the Father, which he found acceptable. And then he's waiting for that 10-day period. They don't know that it's 10 days, but they're waiting for the Spirit to come down based on the promises of Scripture and the promises of Jesus. And uh, I was thinking about this whole waiting. I I entitled the sermon Waiting for God, but it made me think when I was a student at Westwood High School just down the street, in one of my English classes, we had to study a play called Waiting for Godot. Uh, It was written in French originally in the early 50s. Does anyone know of Waiting for Godot? Just help me out here. Somebody, anybody, nobody has heard of Waiting for Godot. So some theater scholars would consider this the most influential play of the 20th century. Okay, all right. We don't have a theater crowd. That's okay, all right? There's different church, you know, different congregations are a little bit different. That's fine. We don't have theater folks here. But anyway, Samuel Beckett, he was an Irish guy. He wrote in French and English. He wrote this play called Waiting for for Godot in 1952. It premiered in France in, I think, 1953. And it's gone on to just massive success, okay? And again, some call it the most important play of the 20th century. And this is what the play consists of. Are you ready for this? The play consists of a tree and two men waiting for the arrival of a third person named Godot. It's a two-act play, it's over two hours long, and that's it. And you're thinking, thank goodness I've never heard of Waiting for Godot, because I would walk out of it. Um, People love this play, um, but it's basically these two guys, Vladimir and Estragon, and they're waiting for this third person named Godot, and spoiler alert, because I know you guys are gonna rush out and go see this, right, close your ears, put on your your mufflers, or whatever. Godot never shows up. There's no person in the cast for Godot because he never shows up. He's not actually in the play, okay? So spoiler alert there. And some have interpreted this. You can imagine, like, all these theater, these academic scholars that, 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 that look at plays and try and figure out what the author was thinking, what the playwright was thinking, all this stuff. So a lot interpret this to mean that waiting on Godot is... is it, I think I've got a picture, actually. So there's Professor X and Gandalf playing the two lead... Characters and Waiting for Godot. I think that was in 2013. But everybody who's anybody has, has done Waiting for Godot in the acting world, okay? So that was uh, what Patrick Stewart is his name and Ian McClellan, or Ian McClellan. Okay, so, so Godot is spelled G O D O T. So some have interpreted this to mean that waiting for God is essentially a futile thing to do, all right? Waiting for God, waiting for Godot. Is basically this, this ultimately futile thing because guess what? He's never going to show up. So you're going to keep waiting and waiting and waiting and God's not going to show up. And if that's what the author meant by waiting for Godot, then the entire two-act play is spent exploring the relative ridiculousness and the ultimate meaninglessness of what we think and what we do as we wait for God. That waiting for God, anything you do and think in that process is is ultimately meaningless and ridiculous and futile. So if you haven't already figured this out yet... It's a sad play, right? Like, you walk away with this kind of feeling of emptiness. So these two main characters, the whole time, are doing these really pointless things. Like, they wear these bowler hats, and they're taking their hat off, and they're looking at the brim, and they're shaking their hat, and they're putting back on, they're taking their boots off with with much uh, uh, duress, and then they're putting their boots back on, and I mean, they're eating carrots and radishes, like, this is what they do throughout two hours and two acts of a play, Okay. Because it's futile, it's meaningless what they do. It doesn't matter, right? And that's, I think, what the, the, the playwright was trying to get across. So it is a sad and empty play. And the reason I think it's been so massively popular since it came out in the early 1950s is because there are so many people in our world today that can identify with that feeling of futility and meaninglessness. That they identify with feeling like they're waiting and they're waiting. And this is especially true for people who have rejected God. Their creator. They've rejected him. And so now they're waiting and waiting and everything seems meaningless and futile. Well, of course it does, because we're creatures that have rejected our creator. So you can imagine how that would work itself out. But we as Christians are also vulnerable to feeling futile at times. Those of you who have bowed the knee to Christ, who have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can still go through periods in your life where, where things just seem sort of meaningless and sort of they kind of um, uh, have a hollow ring to them, a, a kind of a hollow thud, if you will. Um, and that's especially true when, when we feel like we're waiting on God for something and He's just not showing up. Right, and I feel that too sometimes, by the way. But this happens when we forget, guys, that God has already shown up that God has already shown up and that God continues to show up and that Jesus Christ did not lie when He said, I will be with you always even until the end of the age. The Holy Spirit, the presence of God indwells us and we can know that God is with us because we can experience the presence of God's Holy Spirit who indwells us as believers, both individually and corporately as the church. And, He will continue to be with us, folks, till the end of the age. He will continue to be with us until we stand in resurrected bodies, glorified with Jesus Christ, our Lord, in his kingdom. And he will be with us even until that day, even unto that day. But today's passage describes this really unique moment in history. And we talked about this in the girls group this morning, but it was a 10 day period of waiting on God to send his spirit. The Spirit did not indwell people in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament. He came on to people, kings and prophets and such, but they messed up. King Saul is a great example, and he pulled his spirit back. They, they revealed themselves as rebellious and unrighteous and unholy and unworthy, and God took his spirit from them. The Spirit did not indwell people permanently like he does on this side of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. We have been made holy, therefore the Holy Spirit Can reside in us, in our new nature in Christ. All right? So there's this 10 day waiting period uh, before we get to the arrival of the Spirit. And it's like, I think about movies. uh, I think I was was thinking of saying, I think it was Father of the Bride or Father of the Bride 2, but it's like this waiting room scene in the hospital, you know? But, But it's a waiting for the arrival of the Spirit and the birth of the church. The church was born in Acts chapter 2, and this is the waiting scene in the 10 days prior to that. So even though we will never have to wait for the Spirit like these disciples, we, this is a unique moment in history. We're not waiting around for God to send His Spirit. So when we say, God, send your Spirit, we, we don't mean, God, your Spirit's up there in heaven, you need to send Him so that we can fill Spirit. What, what, we, what, what we mean is, God, fill us with your Spirit. God, give us the ability to to give control of our lives over to your spirit, to direct us, to give us wisdom and joy and peace and all these things he promises, love. That's what we mean when we say we we want your spirit, but he's already with us. We don't have to replicate this. And uh, even though we'll never have to wait like these early disciples, we can learn a lot from their example. And that's where I want to get the application today. Yes, we're not going to be in their shoes, so to speak, in this 10-day waiting period, but we can learn a lot from their example because they show us what faith looks like as we wait for God to show up in different times and in different ways in our life, and our circumstances. And this is really the big idea for today's sermon. Living a life of faith means learning how to wait for God. Let me throw it back at you. Living a life of faith means learning how to wait for God. That's what living a life of faith is all about. Learning how to wait well for God. And today's passage shows us three things that we must do as we wait for God. And that is we are to stay, pray, and obey. How do you like that? It rhymes. Stay, pray, and obey. I hope that's memorable. Stay, pray, and obey. First of all, we must stay put We must remain where God has us, where God wants us to be. That is the first thing that is demonstrated by the disciples in this passage. We can't afford kids. Who's seen Line Guard? Come on. Some of you kids have seen Line Guard. Some of you parents. Yeah, thank you, Mary Claire. Yeah, we got Will. uh, So mostly parents. Watch the Line Guard. But my favorite. Thank you, Brantner. My favorite is the zebra who's, who's like panic and run, panic and run, you know. Because that's what zebras do, right? They just get spooked and they start running, right? Uh, we can't afford to do that as Christians. We can't afford to panic and run and just bolt every time we get skittish. And, and we, can't, we also can't, like, in, in like some sort of sense of boldness and fearlessness, just push forward in our own strength and effort, in our own ability, in our own wisdom. We can't just push ahead either. Let's look at verse 12 and 13. Starting in verse 12, it says... This is after Jesus ascends into heaven and his disciples come back and it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey away. It's like a half mile walk on the eastern side of Mount Olivet. Uh, when they had entered the city, they went up to the upstairs room where they were staying. That is Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot and Judas, the son of James. And this is exactly what Jesus had told them to do. Jesus had said, stay put and wait. Do you remember this? He made this clear back at the beginning of Acts. We looked at the other day. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. It says, gathering them together, Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. What had the Father promised in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew prophets? What had the Father promised? The Spirit. He said, wait for what the Father had promised, which He said, you heard of from Me. For John, that is John the Baptist, baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not too many days from now. And this echoes what Luke, the author of Acts, also wrote the Gospel of Luke. This echoes what he wrote at the end of his Gospel in Luke chapter 24, verse 49. Jesus says, and behold, I am sending the promise of My Father upon you, But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So the disciples were supposed to stay in the city filled with people who had just six weeks earlier crucified their Lord. Could you imagine a more intimidating set of circumstances than to be right smack in this city that had just screamed crucify him, crucify him? Remember how fearful they were on the night of his arrest and betrayal? Remember, they denied Jesus, they ran away. Remember this? And they're right back in that same city, and he says, stay put. So despite the fear of persecution, and and we celebrate the month of November, we celebrate uh, uh, what God is doing in and through the church around the world that is being persecuted. We give glory to God for what he's doing, but, but through the month of November, this is the international day and month of prayer for the persecuted church. And so they are here, and despite fear of persecution, despite what's, what may very well happen to them and what does eventually happen to them, as they all die martyrs, except for maybe one of them, uh, John, but as they all look in the face of persecution and, and, and harm, they, despite that fear, they were to stay in Jerusalem and wait for God to show up. Waiting for God means staying put. Um, uh, I was talking to a good friend of mine the other day, and we were talking about fears and how fears drive us. And I thought this was so appropriate as an illustration for this. But uh, we were talking about economic fears, inflation, and, and where our money's invested, and, and maybe maybe out of fear of losing our money or something, or, or losing our rights or something, we should divest from the U.S. economy, invest other places around the world, uh, maybe move you know, to some island somewhere, something like this, and, and just allow that pressure and that financial economic fear to drive us. It, it can. It, it does drive some people. But what happens as Christians when we are guided by our fears, whether economic or otherwise? What happens when we're driven by those fears and insecurities and anxieties? You see, as Christians, we always have to ask this question. Am I where you want me to be, God? Am I where, and that is a very different question. Am I where you want me to be is a different question than am I happy? Am I comfortable? Am I content? Do I feel safe and secure And there are times, folks, when we won't feel happy, when we won't feel comfortable, when we won't feel content with where we are in our life, and yet God has us right exactly where he wants us. That's part of what it means to live a life of faith. It's waiting for God well. But we can't lose, we can't let those feelings drive us from where God has sovereignly placed us to be. Guys, we can't be the lion guard zebra. We can't panic and run. Okay? We have to stand. Paul uses that language a lot. And I guarantee you, as we look at our passage today, I guarantee you that none of the disciples felt particularly comfortable, confident, or secure in those circumstances in first century Jerusalem. Six weeks after they had done horrible things to Jesus Christ, their Lord, their, 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 their teacher, their Savior, their Savior, and they had watched it happen. They didn't feel particularly comfortable, confident, or secure, but despite the way that they must have felt, folks, what did they do? They stayed in Jerusalem just like Jesus had commanded them to, and they waited for God to show up. And waiting for God means staying put. Think of situations in your life when you felt most pressured to move away from where God has you. It could be the feeling of discontentment with your spouse. It could be uh, a a feeling of discontentment with your salary or your standard of living. Like, I just, I'm this, this, I want more square footage or or this, you know, we're not close enough to a lake and I want to go boating more. Uh, So it could be something like that, or it could be something that, that, that uh, an anxiety that drives us. It could be the fear of being exposed as a fraud. We might change churches because people are getting a little too close to the truth about our hearts. And our sin is getting, you know, it's funny, um, Kevin, when uh, Kevin and Amanda joined on, on the core team with us for Wayside, remember what Kevin Pete asked you? Before he gave his blessing for you to join our church and make a commitment to Wayside, he asked some great pastoral questions. He's the lead pastor at the Stone. Uh, but he asked Kevin one question in particular. He said, are you leaving our church Because of sin. You don't want to be found out. So that you can go to some other church and be anonymous. And then you can kind of play that role a little longer before someone finds out what's really going on. And of course his answer is no. But I just thought that was such a good pastoral question to ask. But are we being driven by a fear of being exposed as a fraud? Or feeling lonely or isolated? Is that driving us? This is when, in the middle of these circumstances, is exactly when we have to stop. And we have to ask the question... God, where do you want me? Where do you want me in this life? Do you want me to stay put in this job that brings me no satisfaction, that I feel like a ditch digger, that it feels futile, I feel like those guys on the play just taking off their hat and putting it back on? Do you want me to stay in this marriage? Folks, God's Spirit will work through God's Word and through God's people. God's Spirit will work through God's Word and God's people to help us better understand where He wants us to be. Our job is to simply stay put as we wait for God to show up. And what do I mean by that? What do I mean for wait for God to show up? I mean, wait for God to bring the joy that you're, that you're missing, wait for God to fill up that sense of emptiness in your soul with Himself. Wait for God to bring the love that you don't feel, the peace in the midst of the consternation, the sense of purpose in the times where you feel purposeless, to help us persevere through the difficulties and the trials, and to empower us to be His witnesses wherever He has us, because that's our job as Christians is to reflect His glory and to share the good news of Jesus Christ with whoever He has around us in whatever the circumstances, whether we're in a dungeon falsely accused of something in Egypt or whether we're in a prison in Philippi falsely accused of something and beaten, despite the fact that we're Roman citizens. He's going to use us in those places. We just have to stay put and wait for God. So waiting for God, first of all, means staying where God wants us regardless of how things seem. Second, we must pray this is huge in our passage, specifically, because we, we <laughs> I, I pray prayers. I'm like, God, get me out of these crazy circumstances. I can't do it. Get me out, please. Give me some other job. Give me some, let me take a vacation, something, right? That's not what I'm talking about. What were they praying in those 10 days in the upper room in Jerusalem? I think specifically We must pray according to God's promises. Has God promised me another job somewhere? Has God promised I'm going to live on a beach someday? No, okay? But God has promised a tremendous amount to us in Scripture. And if we pray those promises of God, we can bank on the fact that He will answer those prayers. We also have to pray how Jesus taught us to pray. (laughs) And just like Jesus' disciples we want to know how to pray. You remember they came up to him and they said, would you teach us how to pray? Like John's disciples, they're praying these really cool prayers. Could you show us how to pray? And remember, he, he gives them the Lord's Prayer, which you might as well call the disciples' prayer, because that's who's praying it. But what did he teach them to pray? Luke, the author of Acts, tells us in his gospel. Luke chapter 11. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation. So, prayerfulness is, is a constant theme throughout the book of Acts. Just buckle up and get ready for this as we progress through Acts. Dependent, desperate prayer to God is a hallmark of the story of the, the birth of the church. In Acts chapter 1, in our passage, verse 14, Luke gives us a glimpse of the prayer life of those early disciples. He says this, he says, "...all these were continually devoting themselves with one mind to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers." So again, they were probably praying how Jesus had taught them to pray to the Father. Wouldn't that make all the sense in the world? What were they praying? "...Holy be your name, God." I'm more concerned about your holiness, God, revealing your holiness to this world than anything else. That's at the top of my list. Holy be your name. Your kingdom come. This is not about my kingdom I'm building for myself and this earth and this life. This is about your kingdom come. This isn't about getting all the right people elected to office or making sure the wrong people aren't or whatever else. This is about your kingdom coming and overlaying this whole messed up, unjust, broken world. And ushering in true righteousness and true justice as he rules in his kingdom. Your kingdom come. What else? Give us daily provision. As we walk through this wilderness, give us the manna. Give us the water from the rocks. Give us daily provision to be where you want us to be, even though it seems like there would be no way to get provision in those moments, in those circumstances. Give us daily bread. Sustain us. Help us to persevere. Forgive our sins as we forgive others, because we're going to mess up and lead us away from temptation. And they're probably also praying according to the promises that Jesus had just given them. I mean, Jesus had just given them all sorts of promises. You can go back and read in the Upper Room Discourse in John. He talked a lot about the Holy Spirit, but he had just given these promises, and it weren't like Jesus came up with new promises. Jesus actually is echoing the promises of God in the Hebrew Bible. It was written hundreds and sometimes thousand plus years before these events came to pass. These were promises of God in Scripture. And these are the kinds of promises I think they were praying. Specifically, the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower the disciples to be witnesses for Christ. They knew in their guts that they didn't have what it took to do what they were being called to do. To go out to the ends of the earth, starting in a hostile city like Jerusalem, and to do this great commission. They knew they didn't. They knew they couldn't. And so they knew that they had to wait for the empowerment, for the boldness, for the courage, for the perseverance from the Holy Spirit. So waiting for God means continually devoting ourselves to prayer. Uh, I got an email from this guy out of Dallas uh, called the Denison Forum he has. His name is Jim Denison. Uh, But he gives this daily email, kind of like the news from a Christian worldview. And uh, I read it from time to time. And he he ended the one last week with a prayer written by this popular Christian author named Henry Nowen. Henry Nowen was a prolific writer. He wrote about the spiritual life, the Christian life. um, And and I want to read you this prayer. I think it's so great. But this is what Henry Nowen writes, and Jim Dennison included in his email. He says, Dear God, I am full of wishes, full of desires, full of expectations. Some of them may be realized, many may not. But in the midst of all my satisfactions and disappointments, I hope in you. I know that you will never leave me alone and will fulfill your divine promises. Even when it seems that things are not going my way, I know that they are going your way. And that in the end, your way is the best way for me. Oh, Lord, strengthen my hope, especially when my many wishes are not fulfilled. Oh, Lord, strengthen my hope, especially when my many wishes are not fulfilled. Let me never forget that your name is love. Amen. I think that's a beautiful prayer. Waiting for God means praying prayers like that in this life. So what prayers might we pray today, us, in this room, as we, as we wait for God to show up in our lives, at our jobs, in our friendships, in our marriages, in the hearts of our children, in our own hearts? I would encourage all of us uh, to go back to the summer study. If you were a part of it, the Cricket Keith uh, on Bended Knee, we did a whole study on prayer. I've got some extra study guides and you can take them. I will give them to you but it was a fantastic study on prayer, and they had you write out prayers for the different weeks. Go back if you did that and read those prayers you wrote out and read those prayers from Scripture, and that's a good place to start just by revisiting that uh, in terms of learning how to pray. Um, Prayer, folks, will help us persevere. Prayer is not a magic incantation, but it reminds us constantly as we pray constantly that God loves us and He's with us. And it reminds us of his promises as we pray those promises back to him and his truth as we pray that truth back to him, okay? Uh, So to recap, waiting for God means that we must stay and pray. And finally, we must obey. Um, We must obey what God reveals to us in his word. This is the one that most of us would like to leave out. Actually, we'd probably like to leave out the stay part too. That's part of obedience. But we must obey. We must obey what God reveals to us in his word, right? Scripture. And we must obey what he reveals about his will in answer to our prayers. Okay. In verses 15 through 22, we see the disciples obeying God's word. Peter leads out and looking to God's word. And they had the Hebrew Bible in, at this time. They didn't have the full New Testament. They had the, 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 the Jewish scriptures. And so Peter's looking at these scriptures and he's going to God's word for guidance. And listen to this and I'll read it pretty quickly. Starting in verse 15, at this time, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters, a group of about 120 people was there together and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas. You can obviously see that he believes that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that the Holy Spirit spoke through King David in writing these Psalms foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested us. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. I'm going to skip the little side note about what happened to Judas because we read that earlier. And then I'm going to jump down to 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, and then he quotes, May his residence be made desolate, and may there be none living in it, and may another take his office. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So Jesus had made uh, certain promises to his apostles. This is important because this is in the back of their heads. Um, Think about what he had said on the eve of his crucifixion in Luke chapter 22. Again, same author, Luke. In Luke's gospel in chapter 22, Jesus said this. He said, you are the ones, he's talking to his disciples, all right? He said, you are the ones who have stood by me in my trials. You've stayed put with me in my trials. And what a gracious God we have. He knew what was going to happen later that night, that they were going to bolt But he graciously says, You're the ones who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. If you're going to sit on thrones judging twelve tribes, how many thrones do you think there might ought to be? Probably twelve, right? So now that Judas had rejected Jesus, there were only... I can't do that. I don't have 11 fingers. There were only 11 apostles, all right? Because there had been 12. They lost Judas. So Peter looks to the words of David in the Psalms of all places to figure out how to move forward. And he interprets Psalm 69, verse 25, and Psalm uh, 109, verse 8, to mean that God had foretold, this is a thousand years before Jesus Christ was born in a manger, okay? That, that uh, God had foretold that Judas would be removed from their apostolic band, the band of apostles, and would be replaced by another close associate of Jesus. So Peter leads the disciples in obeying God's word by selecting another apostle to replace Judas. And then, so God's word, they want to obey it. They go to God's word to obey it. Then look at this in the last verses of our passage. um, Verses 23 through 26. The disciples prayerfully seek God's will with an eagerness to obey it, so it wasn't enough just to go to God's word and see this is the guidance we need to fill Judas's spot, and then they go off and fill it however they feel like. They go and choose whoever they want. No, they want to obey God's word, but then they go to God for direction on how to obey His word. I love the obedience here. They wanted to know who God wanted for this position. It wasn't enough to just know God wanted the position to be filled, and then verse starting in verse twenty three. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, you who know the hearts of all people, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots or cast lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias and he was added to the 11 apostles. All right, so given all the various names, you'd think, like, Luke spends all this time, this guy's name was Sabbath, which means son of the Sabbath, right? That's a cool name, right? Especially if you're Jewish, it's like, wow, he's, he must be pretty impressive. But then he has, like, two other names. So you would immediately think, like, this guy was, this is the guy here, right? He's the guy with the resume, right? But that's not who they choose. The second candidate, candidate Matthias, was the one chosen by Lot. And casting lots was sort of like, throwing dice or drawing straws or putting pieces of paper in a hat and picking them out. Uh, it was a, a common practice throughout the Old Testament. They didn't make this up. This is how God told his people at different times throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, this is how they figured out God's will. They would cast lots, draw lots, and, and they did. Um, so that was, that was a practice. Today, I'll just say this kind of as an aside, we don't need to cast lots. We talked about this in the girls' groups. Why don't we need to cast lots? What's different today? We're going to talk about it next week, because we have the Spirit of God living in us. Because we can come together as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as husbands and wives in Christ, as a, as a church leadership team in Christ, as a church family in Christ, and we can pray and, and receive guidance through God's Holy Spirit working through us as we dependently pray to God together. And we can receive wisdom and guidance. We don't have to cast lots anymore. Okay. But as the first disciples were waiting for God, they cast lots and they prayed that God would thereby indicate who he wanted to replace Judas. And he did. Matthias. And they obeyed. They chose Matthias. So as we wait for God, we must obey his will as it is revealed to us through his word or in response to our prayers for guidance. Okay? I recently read, uh, Christianity Today did an article, um, if you have heard this in the news, uh, Sudan... They just had a military coup uh, in October uh, where the military basically went into Khartoum, the capital, and kind of took things over. So there's a lot of political instability going on in Sudan right now. Um, But Christianity Today had this really interesting article, and it was about um, these two Lebanese Christians. They're from Lebanon, so they're really used to all sorts of kind of crazy political, economic circumstances. Uh, They're from Lebanon. And uh, one of them's older, I think he was in his uh, 70s, and the other one was, I think, in his 20s or 30s. But these two Lebanese Christian workers who got stuck in Sudan during during last month's military coup. So all of a sudden, you know, they're getting a call, uh, the younger one, his wife, Joy, is calling, like, going, hey, I'm on the BBC app, and things just went nuts. And they were 90 miles away from Khartoum when everything went haywire, okay? And so instead of freaking out and trying to get to the airport as soon as they can and get out of there oh my gosh, it's unstable. Who knows what's going to happen? Oh, anxiety and fear and all these things. They didn't do that. They didn't race off to the airport. What they did is they did what they felt like God had called them to do when he brought them to Sudan in the first place. And that is to disciple Christian leaders in those communities and to look for opportunities to share the gospel with Sudanese youth. And so they got to work. Um, They knew why they were there, and sure enough, God opened up this opportunity for them to preach the gospel, and this is like, it read like the book of Acts, like, you know, they tried to get here, and then they had ripped up the sidewalk and barricaded the street here, and the little taxi had to bring them over here, and they finally got to this poverty-stricken town on the outskirts of the ninth largest city in Sudan. And they're like, there's this Christian guy there. And he's the first Christian convert in this entire community. And he had gone on to build a church building, start a church, build a school, and fill it with Muslim youth in Sudan. And so they get to this little place and they go, hey, let's do a youth rally. I expect like 100 people to show up. A thousand people show up in this guy's like dirt-covered schoolyard. And they're all, see, they run out of seats. They're all just piled in there. And he says, in this guy that started the school that was the first convert, he says, just preach the gospel of Jesus clearly. That was it. And so they got up there, they, you know, uh, they preached the gospel clearly. And then when they asked people to respond, like who who believes in Jesus Christ that he died for your sins and rose again? Who wants to follow Jesus Christ? Like 80% of the people in the crowd indicated, they, they stood up and they're like, no, no, sit back down, that was too many, y'all didn't understand what I said. And he says it again, and then like more, I think it was like 10% more raised their hands. And so God did this amazing thing in this poor village on the outskirts of this little bit larger city in Sudan in the middle of all this political, military, economic Instability, and it's all because these people stayed put where they felt like God has them. And that ninety-five percent Muslim school was filled with people who wanted to follow Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And it was so funny. As I got to the end of the article, and this is when like God gives these little like winks, you know. Sometimes I get to the end of the article, and it it uh, the senior evangelist, the guy who was seventy-four. His wife had passed away from cancer ten years earlier, and he was going to hang up his spurs. And then he and his wife, as she was dying. He made the decision, like, when you go, like, I'm going to give 10 more years. So I'm like, get into my 80s and I'm going to keep doing this. He was like the regional director for this Christian ministry in his 70s. But he was like all in, you know. And uh, he said this. He said when all these people responded, he says he reassured himself from Scripture, from our passage today. He said, God knows the heart What's going on in these people's hearts and minds that just respond to the gospel? I don't know. But God knows the heart. And that, re- that, that reminded him that God is in control, that God knows the heart, that God knows what he's doing in these circumstances. And then the article closes with a quote from the younger guy about what he learned from the older guy in waiting on the Lord. And the younger guy put it like this. He said, God moved circumstances and people, putting us in places we could not have imagined, And he said it was like a well-played chess match and God won. (laughs) It was like a well-played chess match and God won. Waiting for God, folks, means being obedient even when we can't anticipate God's next move. So where is God calling us to be obedient as we faithfully wait for him to show up and do what only he can do Are we looking to Scripture to better understand God's will for our lives? Are we seeking to know His will through dependent prayer, both individually and together? If we will just be obedient as we wait for the Lord, then we will have the privilege, like that younger guy said, of watching God move circumstances and people and put us in places we could not have ever imagined being Uh, At the conclusion of the final act of that famous play, Waiting for Godot, that none of you guys have seen, and none of you guys are going to see now that I've described it to you, the final act, one of the main characters tells the other that if Godot comes the next day, they will be saved. That's actually what he says. If Godot comes the next day, we will be saved. But as the curtain closes, you get this overwhelming sense that nobody in the play actually expects Godot to ever come thus never be saved. That's the exact opposite of what we see in today's passage. As the curtain closes on the first chapter of the book of Acts, we find these disciples of Jesus expectantly waiting for God to show up, and that's exactly what will happen in the opening scenes of Acts chapter 2 that we're going to look at starting next week. But in the meantime, the disciples model over these 10 days what we should all be doing as we wait for God to show up at different points in our life. They stay put right where God has them. They devote themselves to prayer and they faithfully obey God's word and God's will as he reveals it to them in response to their prayers. Um, next week, this prayerful anticipation of Acts chapter one is going to culminate in the arrival of the Holy Spirit and the birth of of the church of Jesus Christ. And I can't wait to jump into that with you.